This morning on today's Style Fashion Week, twice a year the world's biggest designers descend upon New York City to unveil the next season's newest looks to the international media. It's September 10th, 2001, the day before 9-11. Katie Couric stands outside of the Today Show studio in Rockefeller Plaza. She's near a huge plastic tent where one of the big fashion shows is about to happen. Designer Kenneth Cole will reveal his spring 2002 lines. Katie Couric goes inside the tent to interview Kenneth Cole. Good morning, nice to see you. It's 8.46 a.m., exactly 24 hours before the first plane hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Kenneth Cole is expecting NBC to go live with his show. And, and But we had to spend a lot of money to build a tent and to set up the whole thing. And I said, is there any scenario where you don't go live when we do? And they said, no. Maybe if there's a shark on Jones Beach, you know, you'll get cut out of the 8 o'clock hour, but you'll still be in the 9 o'clock hour. But first, this is today on NBC. Behind them, a crowd of models, producers, and stylists move shoulder to shoulder between racks of clothes. As it happens during most fashion shows, there is a flurry of last-minute activity. It's a little chaotic back here. How Of course, they have no idea that the next day the word chaos would have a whole different meaning. New York Fashion Week Spring-Summer 2002 is a much-anticipated season. Fashion magazines predict it to be the biggest yet. It starts out that way. But in less than 24 hours, all of that changes. All the networks shut down, and uh, nobody ever could have ever anticipated this. And, and the press about our show was never read by anybody because the magazine, the newspapers were never circulated the next day. And you know, how quickly something can change so profoundly is extraordinary. I'm Natalia Alcantara. And I'm Emily Akshian. This is Shoe Leather, an investigative podcast that digs up stories from New York City's past to find out how yesterday's news affects us today. This season, we're focusing on the day before 9-11. September 10, 2001 was just another Monday for most Americans. At the Today Show, headlines ranged from a shark attack story and a moderate earthquake on the West Coast to a story on how to measure your child's athletic potential. How do you really know if that child has what it takes? There is also a lot of uncertainty about the economy. How low will stocks go with troubling economic news, anemic growth and rising unemployment? And fashion designers are paying attention to what's going on. Like Carolina Herrera, who says, when the economy falls, skirts go up. (laughs) So I have have short skirts. We're showing lots of legs to make people happy. (laughs) In this episode, we go back in time to look at how fashion industry reacted to the attacks. We want to know, during times of social and political disruption, is fashion a distraction or is there something helpful, perhaps necessary about it? The unthinkable happened today. From the 9-11 attacks. Both towers gone. To war. Military operations to disarm Iraq. To free its people. To a worldwide pandemic. Declared that the coronavirus presents a public health emergency in the United How States. How does fashion reflect the time we live in? This is Shoe Leather, Season 3. 
the day before. You're listening to That's So 910. In 2001, Fashion Week began with big budgets, colorful collections, and extravagant parties. Everybody who was anybody wanted to be there. Ben Whittacombe is a journalist and a fashion gossip columnist. He has spent more than 20 years reporting on New York's high society. And on the night of September 10th, he was where everyone wanted to be. The Marc Jacobs show was a very big deal. I remember he had both men and women walking together, which wasn't necessarily usual. He had a lot of big stars, a lot of big models were there, Carolina Kokova. Uh, he had a lot of floral prints. It was a very pretty collection. He came out and, and to thunderous applause, and then he applauded back, which is what the designers did at the time. And in the audience were a huge number of celebrities. There was Zoe Cassavetes and David Copperfield. Uh, I saw Tina Brown talking to Donald Trump and his girlfriend, Melania Naus at the time. It was before they were married. Uh, and of course, Sarah Jessica Parker, also there in the front row. So uh, it really was a big deal. Mickey Boardman was there too. He's a magazine editor and a designer. At the end of the show, he remembers, there was a surprise. I can't remember if it was a curtain or something opened behind Mark Jacobs at the end of the runway. And there was the after party. Mark Jacobs held a grand candlelit party to celebrate the launch of his very first fragrance. And you could see the whole skyline, including the World Trade Center. I remember my friends and I talking about how they had those fire department boats that shoot the hoses. So, and it had been raining, so it was, I remember girls in their high heels kind of stepping on the wet grass, and it was kind of hard to walk on. On that night, Mickey looked at the lights of the World Trade Center, shining to the south from the party. I left kind of feeling it's great to live in New York and to be in fashion and to be able to go to these kinds of amazing things. And it just was so quaint. It was such a beautiful, fabulous photo and such a moment in time that then we all woke up the next morning and it kind of was all gone. September 11, 2001, had been circled on Liz Lang's calendar for months. And it's all over maternity wear. She's a fashion designer, and on that morning at 9 a.m., she was presenting the first ever maternity fashion show at New York Fashion Week. Here we have the designer, Liz Lang herself. Liz, tell me, why is it so important for women to shop for this very small window of their lives? Because you know what? It's not such a small window. It's nine months, and then it's... At the time, pregnant women had little choice but to wear the so-called mommy uniform. Tent-like shirts, shapeless dresses, poorly cut sweatpants. Lise Lang wanted to change that. She had been working for years to create a line that is just as sophisticated as any of the major women's ready-to-wear brands, from the look, the feel, the cuts, to the models that stir her collections. I thought the ultimate way to do that was why shouldn't it also have a fashion show just like all other, you know, other designer brands have huge fashion shows. So, yeah, at the time, again, the brands that were very popular, I was looking at like Michael Kors and Gucci and all those products. And I just wanted to be like that. Liz is 56 years old now, a household name in the fashion industry. But back then, she was just starting out. In the early 90s, Liz worked as an editorial assistant at Vogue magazine. It was a, you know, beginner job. It was my first job out of college, and I was working for an editor. And that's when she met Stefan DiGeronimo. 
a young designer whose work inspired her to enter the business of fashion. So I left my job at Vogue and I went to work for him. And while I was there, out of necessity, because he didn't have any employees, I was the only one, uh, I kind of, I learned the business because I did everything. So whatever needed to be done, I did it. I sourced fabrics. I was younger and thinner then. I was also the fit model. I helped him do his shows. I showed him designs that I thought my friends and I in our early 20s would be interested in wearing to help him with his designing, but I didn't consider myself a designer. Definitely, definitely not. About two years later, Liz started to see many of her pregnant friends struggling to find stylish clothes. She realized that maternity wear needed a revolution, but she didn't think she would be the one to make it happen. She suggested Dijeronimo, the designer she worked for, to do a maternity line. But he wasn't interested. So eventually, she decided to start the line herself. In 1997, Liz took a loan from her family, made some samples, and shared her designs with friends and celebrity publicists. The business grew fast. Three years later, Liz had a shop on Madison Avenue in Beverly Hills and in the Miracle Mile on Long Island. Then, she wanted her next step to be a Fashion Week show. In order to have a show at Fashion Week, at least in the United States, you have to be a member of the Council of Fashion Designers of America, known for short as the CFDA. Um, So I applied to join the CFDA, which actually isn't easy either. To her surprise, she was accepted. Still, she had to pay for production, and a fashion show in the early 2000s was very expensive. Her company was doing well, so she made the investment. After all, a show will be a major platform for marketing. Finally, the big day came, September 11th. At 5 a.m., Liz arrived in Bryant Park, where most of the shows were happening. It was crazy because, you know, it's pitch blackout, but the tent is already buzzing because I've got all these models there. Then the press arrived. It felt almost like that moment that I see celebrities having when they're on a red carpet and there's so many photographers screaming like, over here, over here, look over here, you know, and there's all these flashbulbs. That's sort of what it felt like to be backstage that morning. But Liz stopped giving interviews to keep her focus on the show. She fixed the looks and checked the model's hair and makeup. After all, she thought there would be tons of time after the show to do more interviews. So... I'm watching the show from the curtain backstage, and I see all the press, and it is so much press between, you know, the the electric media, which is what we used to call all the TV stations, and then all the photographers and the print media. Everybody's there. It's a total media circus. Up until that point, everything was going according to plan. But then, as Liz looked from behind the curtains, she noticed something weird. I noticed that the CNN camera crew, they seem to go like running out of the tent. Like they leave the show, they go running out. And then I see some other people are leaving and I'm so confused. And I'm thinking like, why, you know, this is not what I signed up for. Like I'm mad at my publicist. I'm thinking like, what, did they have something else to cover this morning? That like, you know, they're not staying for the whole show. The show's only like 10 or 15 minutes. So, but I had no, I mean, no clue, like no idea at all. As soon as the last model left the runway, things got even more strange. And I noticed that the guards are just 
pushing everybody outside the tent. Just like basically like screaming, like clear out the tent, clear out the tent. Everyone has to go. And I am arguing with them. I am saying, no, that's not the way it works. Like we have a full hour afterwards where I'm supposed to do interviews where people are coming backstage. Like why are you making everybody leave? And they're not even answering. I mean, they probably don't even know why. They've probably been told that. I have no idea. So they're clearing out the tents. I am arguing with my publicist. Like what is going on? Like this is not, we paid all this money. Like what, you know, this doesn't make any sense. Like I'm not, obviously I didn't feel the same once I understood, but I didn't understand. The news didn't travel as fast then as it does now in 2022. Nobody had news feeds on their phones or social media. So Liz wandered around, confused, and finally realized what was happening. She heard that a small plane had hit the World Trade Center. But she had no idea how serious it was. She had been in her tent, her bubble, most of the morning. But then she steps outside. She's basically forced to by security guards. She realized that not only her show is over, New York City is a totally different place. I remember I, I was in very high heels, of course, because I was dressed for my show and for this very glamorous event, but there was no way, there was nothing was working. Like you couldn't get a taxi. There were no Ubers back then. But you couldn't, everything was just chaos, of course. So I got on a bus. I got on the bus and I, people were screaming things like, like, oh, another, another plane just hit the White House. Another plane just hit the Supreme Court. It turned out that none of that ended up happening, but we didn't know where the bottom was. We felt like the entire world, anything could happen, and like no, no place was safe. New York Fashion Week, like the rest of the country, stopped. The remaining 73 fashion shows were canceled, and the industry was frozen. Just like with like an innocence that died, like an innocence of a lightness that just died. Designer Oscar De La Renta had his show scheduled at noon right after Liz Lang. Models were coming in crying because they had seen it. They'd come a lot, were living in Tribeca. They had seen, they had seen something horrible happen. That's Adam Lippis. Back then, he was Oscar De La Renta's creative designer. Now he has his own luxury brand. De La Renta's show, of course, was canceled. And Adam Limpis went home. He watched the news from his apartment. I was on the phone a lot. And within, I would say, 48 hours, Mr. De La Renta uh, wanted to show. Um, and I was sort of horrified by the prospect because, you know, it was so scary. But he was like, these people will not win. Uh, we must go on. And so we wound up, I called some of the agents, the model agents that I knew, and we decided to do sort of a small show in our showroom. But the fashion show was very different from what was planned for 9-11. It was very sad. It was the most beautiful collection, and it was, it was just, we showed it without music. Everyone wore armbands out of respect. It was very small, obviously. I mean, a fashion show without music, you know, mm. already is strange. And it was just... Maybe there were 50 people, 75 people in the showroom instead of a... At Oscar, we used to see maybe 1,500 people at a normal show back in the day. So it was a very solemn um, experience, but it was great. Oscar was right that we had to continue on, and, and we did. So we were the first show to show again. In the weeks following 9-11, other big designers like Ralph Lauren and Donna Karen also did small presentations in their own studios. 
These big names have their own showrooms to hold their fashion shows and the influence to get people to show up. But for smaller designers, the situation is very different. They can't reschedule their shows. It's worth pausing here to understand why designers even do fashion shows. It's mostly about buyers, people who represent department and chain stores, as well as smaller boutiques. They go to fashion shows looking at trends and deciding which products they want to stock and sell at the stores they represent. Designers do fashion shows because if everything goes well, order starts to come in days, sometimes weeks later. Also, depending on how much press there is, designers save tons in PR money because of the attention they often get. Remember how excited Liz Lang sounded about all the press on her show? That's because she could see her investment paying off. So, when designers decide to do a Fashion Week show, they are essentially making a big bet. They are paying for the venue, the models, makeup artists, production, all of that, hoping that the show will bring some return later down the road. For emerging designers who don't have tons of money to spare, it could be a make-it-or-break-it situation. If it works, they get their names on the map. And if it doesn't, they can get in financial trouble. In the aftermath of the attacks, designers had to face the fact that their huge investments would not return. Here is Liz Lang again. I always hesitate to say this because this is not the tragedy of 9-11. I'm not even close to pretending it is or thinking it is. I don't think that at all. But since you're asking me very specifically mm-hmm. about that, yes, it was kind of a disaster for business, which I didn't know that. I mean, deals that we had on the table that were supposed to happen, different buyers that were in town from Japan, from the UK, from Europe, they all left. And those deals never, never materialized. Anna Winter, the editor-in-chief of Vogue, decided to take action. A little more than a week after the attacks, she helped organize a show named An American View, a group show for emerging designers who had their events canceled. Carolina Herrera donated the venue, her Midtown Manhattan showroom. Models and artists donated their time. And like De La Renta's post-9-11 show, there was no music. The show's producer, Deborah Hughes, told the New York Times that all the audience could hear were the footsteps of models walking down the runway and the clicks of the cameras. 9-11 brought people in the fashion industry altogether, which is out of the ordinary, according to people in the business. But they had to, to save new designers. But fashion's next move was trickier. How does it respond when an entire nation is grieving, when it's in the cusp of war? When shopping for clothes is one of the last things people are thinking about. While high fashion struggled with what to show, people on the street were already reacting to a changing time. Fashion journalist Ben Whittycombe started to see signs of this right away. There was a kind of ubiquitous T-shirt that you would see a bit at the time called Defend Brooklyn. And underneath those two words was a picture of an AK-47 assault rifle. And like the cool hipsters would wear that to show how edgy they were. I, I can tell you I didn't see a Defend Brooklyn t-shirt, for, I want to say, for 15 years after 9-11. Um, they were quite popular before. On, on that day, they went into drawers because anything that referenced violence or death um, immediately went away. People stopped wearing, like, little dagger earrings. 
people stopped wearing skulls, um, you know, which is a relatively common fashion accoutrement, especially among people with a bit of an edgy or a punk sensibility. All that stuff went away. No one wanted any kind of death imagery in New York City. The attacks and aftermath had social and political implications, all of which impacted the way people expressed themselves. Islamophobic sentiment spread across the country, and Muslim women who wore a headscarf in the United States found themselves targeted. Shelby Ivy Christie is a fashion historian. A lot of Muslim hate and ignorance came out of, of that historical event, that terrorism attack. So I think that probably is what the output of that was as far as fashion is concerned. You know, if you talk to someone who openly practiced or dressed in a more conservative way and was Islamic during that time, I'm sure they felt self-conscious about their traditional or religious wear. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. Not long after the attacks, America prepared to go to war. It was a bit of a dose of reality, I think, for our industry. That's Adam Lippis again, the designer who worked with Oscar de la Renta. We are showing ball, embroidered ball gowns, and we've just had a terrorist attack and we're going to war. Like, what are we doing? And, you know, who's buying what? And from from what we were showing to what would our customer want in this time was a very challenging period for, you know, the next while. That's when people started using the expression, that's so 910. Here is Mickey Boardman again, the editor and designer. I said it, other people said it too. And it was just sort of for stuff that was kind of cluelessly indulgent on some level. You know what I mean? And fashion is kind of famous for, for that kind of thing. Tragedy can make fashion feel irrelevant, and at times, even inappropriate. Ben Whittycomb stopped updating his column, Chic Happens. Because we were a gossip column and it wasn't an appropriate moment to be writing about fashion gossip, a lot of New York media had a similar response. Prior to that, there would be a lot of like fluffy coverage of fashion and on all sorts of news channels, you know, all the stations, including CNN, um, would cover fashion. Leather, lace, and everything in between, it is all moving down the catwalk at Fashion Week in New York, and CNN's Gail O'Neill has been braving the crowds. Morning, Carol. I'll tell you, this is the biggest media crush I've seen so far. and it's After 9-11, that all changed, and you really couldn't do any stories like that anymore. First of all, of course, all the coverage turned to 9-11 and then the Iraq War. Leon Harris, at this hour, coalition forces sees a key slice of southern Iraq. The, the lighter stuff went away for a period of time, for a few months. The American consciousness and conscience experienced a fundamental change after 9-11. Signs of it manifested itself in our everyday choices, like the shirt we decide is no longer appropriate to wear, or the stories that are no longer relevant. We're not only going to rebuild, we're going to come out of this stronger than we were before. And New York was addition, focused on rebuilding. Uh, wonderful people in New York. Um, particularly Giuliani, mayor at the time, was really encouraging life to get back to normal. And he was saying, go shopping, go out and buy the fashion brands. Uh, wonderful people in New York, as the governor indicated, we also have the strongest business community of any place in the world. You know, we're going to call upon them and we're going to need their help 
but uh, um, I was also working for a fashion magazine at the time called Jalous, and the advertising all fell off after 9-11. So the catastrophe killed that magazine and a lot of other businesses as well. So it wasn't just, you know, idle talk that you had to go out and, and resume economic activity because a lot of businesses failed, including the magazine that I worked for. The economy took a turn for the worse. 20,000 small businesses were displaced immediately after the attacks on the towers. And while New Yorkers were encouraged to shop and return to normal, the news were still grim. Uh, there was so much bad news uh, in the first half of the newspaper because you have to remember the, the pile at Ground Zero burned for months and months afterwards. I mean, even in my house in the East Village, if the wind was blowing the wrong way, I was still in the smoke funnel. Uh, and the smoke was greasy and gross. And every time some new person was identified, it was in the newspaper. So this story didn't go away. They were, they were fresh horrors every day. It took months, but eventually fashion made its way to the news cycle again. When it came back, it came back with a vengeance. So the newspaper editors would say to the feature writers and the gossip writers, we need some levity in the paper. We need you to report on the bright young things and what parties are they going to and who are they dating and what are they wearing. So there was a lot of encouragement from the media to get back to reporting some stuff that was, would give people a break from the horrible news. Fashion became a form of escape, a tool to forget about the horrors of the attacks. But it wasn't detached from what was going on. It rarely is. About six months after 9-11, a new type of celebrity emerged on New York City's red carpets. Firemen were double A-list celebrities in New York City. And any fireman could put on his dress uniform, you know, with the, with the blue suit coat and the, and the hat and the tie. And any red carpet in the city, any velvet robe would open for that man. While fashion can be a tool to get away, for some, it could be the opposite, a way to raise awareness about social issues. It can be activism. Even before 9-11, fashion has played a role, or at least tried to, in social change. Back on September 10, 2001, the day Kenneth Cole was being interviewed on the Today Show, he was wearing a black shirt with the words don't shoot stamped in white bold letters. On top of the phrase, the image of a gun with a stop sign framing. It's just like such a compelling moment right now. Last week, two people were killed from sharks. It was on the cover of every newspaper in the country. 250 people were killed by guns and no one talked about it. And it's become such an unfortunate reality about our culture. He wanted to use his fashion show to take on discussions of gun control. And, you know, we're not vigilantes. We don't go knocking on doors. We don't tell people what they should do. But this is a great opportunity for us to talk about it. And, you know, people... It wasn't the first time Kenneth Cole talked about social issues. He has a long history of using his brand for social activism. In the 90s, his company showed support for gay rights. It was one of the first fashion companies to do that. Throughout the years, his ads touched on controversial issues, from presidential races to abortion. In April this year, Kenneth Cole once again found himself at the top of the Rockefeller Center, the same place he was 20 years ago for his show The Day Before 9-11. But this time, he is a guest speaker for a 2036 Emory University event. Emory alumni from all over the country fill the seats of the rooftop venue. 
They are all here to hear about Kenneth's philanthropic work, like this work at Amfar against HIV/AIDS. We are in the heart of Midtown, on the very top floor. We have a 360-degree view of the city to the north, Central Park, and to the south, the Empire State Building. Kenneth is welcomed to the stage to a burst of applause. He is wearing a gray suit, jeans, and white sneakers with multicolored shoelaces. He talks about how fashion can be used for social change and why it should do so. Later, we got a few minutes on our own with Kenneth. He is friendly. He smiles often. We ask him whether 9/11 influenced his activism. Did Kenneth feel a sense of urgency to act, or did he feel discouraged? That's actually a good question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question. So there's so many. I mean, we all feel very, very uh, vulnerable all the time, and you realize how fragile our infrastructures, our systems are, and our communities are. And um, and it makes you, in some ways, appreciate what you have more than you might otherwise. And at the same time, it makes you realize how much、uh, impact you can make if you're so inspired. Thank you so much. I'll let my colleague. Thank you. Kenneth says he wants his collections to reflect the time we live in, to speak to where people are at and what they're experiencing. It's not, you know, fashion sometimes is is construed to be frivolous, but it isn't. Fashion is where we are as a person at at any given point in time, and it's and where we are is a reflection of what's happening around us. So I kept thinking about Kenneth's words. But before I tell you why, there is something you should know about me. I work in the industry. When I was 18, I was scouted in my home country, Brazil, to become a fashion model. It was a great opportunity. I got to travel around the world and meet so many interesting people. It also allowed me to become a journalist and to pay for school and be here doing this podcast. But the thing is, and you might have heard this before. The world of fashion modeling isn't always pretty. It's not only about glamour, over-the-top parties and shows. Here, I'm talking to makeup artist Dale Johnson while getting ready for a photo shoot. I ask him if he thinks the fashion shows are glamorous. The part that's glamorous is say is the girl walking down the runway. And the fact that every fashion show lasts about twenty minutes—everything <laughs> else, there's is zero months glamour. and years going into that twenty minutes. Even、What's、for the big、year? ones. Oh yeah, yeah, two minutes. Two minutes, okay. Speaking of glamour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also, you know, fashion is gone. The modeling industry is highly unregulated, and I've witnessed how that has a huge impact on the lives of so many who work in fashion. With over a decade in the industry, I have observed issues like wage theft, eating disorders, sexual harassment, overt racism. The list goes on and on. So when I see the fashion industry taking action on social issues, I can't help but feel a bit skeptical. If the industry can clean its own house, can it help with the world's problems? But I kept thinking about Kenneth Cole. He told the Washington Post once, "quote unquote," with the world's fashion press gathered in one room, to not take the opportunity to say more than just what to wear, it just seems inappropriate and wasteful and irresponsible. Fashion is his tool to speak and act about the things he deems important. 
and seeing the tangible impact of his philanthropic work at the Emory event, I've started to look a little bit differently at the industry. I realized one thing. Fashion reflects us. And it can get confusing, at least to me, because our world is full of contradictions. It is a place where tragedy and glamour sometimes coexist, like in the aftermath of 9-11, where there is poverty while there is consumerism, and well, an unregulated and polluting fashion industry full of good intentions. Fashion can reflect these contradictions to us. But it can also reflect other aspects of us, our creativity, expression. Here's Adam Lippes again. We have the, the great gift as designers to be able to work with beauty and hopefully create beauty, and as designers to hopefully help people smile, to escape and smile. Adam believes fashion is a refuge. Even in the pandemic, when you put on that incredible cashmere sweater that you've always loved that made you feel feel good and feel cozy, or, or you put on a blouse finally, at least you felt pretty, or, you know, their fashion has a lot of ways to for people to escape in challenging times. Of course, the fact that the fashion industry plays these roles does not make any of the industry's issues less real. But it helps shed light on one thing. Fashion can tell us a lot about us. The good, the bad, and everything in between. And well, I think it's worth listening to it. So the night we talked to Kenneth and I witnessed the impact of his work, I left a little bit less skeptical and a bit more hopeful about the fashion industry. to the pandemic and yet another disturbing milestone. More than two years in, the U.S. is poised to surpass one million COVID-19 related deaths in this California, week. the notoriously busy highways are nearly empty. The hustle and bustle of New York is at a standstill. This is not life as usual. And uh, accept it and uh, realize it and deal with it. Fashion also took a hit during the pandemic, even for our faces. People were saying, I just can't this anymore. Dick Page is one of the most sought-after makeup artists in the world. Mask mandates created a huge dilemma for him. Because even though makeup for a lot of people is wardrobe, it's part of it's part of getting dressed and presentation for yourself, whether you're just putting on a little bit of mascara or and putting the rest of your face on the train. From bare lips to sweatpants, the pandemic, the lockdowns, the isolation, they literally impacted the way we look and the way we see each other. If you think about the last time you maybe personally saw a room full of actual faces, like entire faces. It's quite strange. 2020, the first pandemic year, was the worst year in the history of luxury retail. Global sales fell by 23%, and the industry relied more heavily on e-commerce and virtual fashion. Here is Ben Whittycomb again. The retail forces uh, and the relative importance of social media have diminished Fashion Week enormously, that all the buzz has gone online versus the in-person events. The industry is adapting and bouncing back. Mega brands like Hermes and Chanel are leading the way. By the first half of 2021, revenues for some of the biggest names in fashion were up as much as 40% compared to before the pandemic. The biggest night in fashion, the Met Gala, is back. Known as the Oscars of the East, 
it seems fitting that this year's theme is the golden era of the Gilded Age. This year, the Met Gala was back in person in May, with the theme from the Gilded Age, a time at the end of the 19th century in the United States when economic growth and corporate giants emerged and when fashion among high society was showy, grand, and extravagant. Remember how hemlines got shorter when the stocks were down back in 2001? Now that many pandemic restrictions have been lifted, so have skirts. Here's kind of Cole again. You know, during COVID, you know, we mainly existed in sweatpants and sneakers and uh, in loungewear. Every, that was all everybody's wardrobe decisions probably for a year or so. And then as soon as people could get out, they ran out and they, the heels got higher and the, and the hems got shorter. Crises like 9-11 and the pandemic can impact the fashion world. But like all things, I mean, people are very resilient and industries are resilient. And, you know, after a few years, things sadly, but true, like, or good, return to normal. Trends are short-lived. After all, that's the very definition of fashion. It tells us about ourselves, like a snapshot of the times. Remember that T-shirt everyone was wearing in Brooklyn and then stopped? The one with the AK-47 assault rifle? Ben Whittacombe says that by 2016, 15 years after the terrorist attacks, he saw people wearing them again. I specifically remember seeing one on the subway if you, you know, about five or six years ago and being surprised, like, oh, that's, so, someone's wearing it again. There's an old saying in fashion, the 20-year rule. It means that 20 years is usually the time it takes for a fashion trend to die and then to become fashionable again. Fashion moves in cycles. While it moves forward, it's also tied to the past, like a clock face. In 20 years, a piece of clothing can go from being the dorkiest, uncoolest, even inappropriate, to the item of the season. But just like a watch, the pointer does not stop. We move on. Shoe Leather is a production of the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Natalia Alcantara. And me, Emily Akshian. Joanne Ferion is our executive producer and professor. Rachel Quester and Peter Leonard are our co-professors. Special thanks to Columbia Digital Librarian Michelle Wilson, Professor Dale Maharaj, Kiara Eisner of The State, Michael Barbaro of The Daily, Sachin Nagpal, Carrie Burke, Michael Patras, and Deborah Rappaport. Shoe Leather's theme music, Squeegees, is by Ben Lewis, Daron Zunis, and Camille Miller, remixed by Peter Leonard. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our season three graphic was created by Maria Fernanda Erives. To learn more about shoe leather and this episode, go to our website, shoeleather.org.